I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. It's December 29th. For our last show of 2020, we'll turn back to a program from July of 2015 as an attempt to hit the reset button. While the book of Ecclesiastes laments there's nothing new under the sun, the Middle Ages lights the way for the old to become new again. We need to find what works and put it to renewed use. Coming up, innovation is nothing new, novelty in the Middle Ages. This is Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Tonight's show, Innovation is Nothing New, Novelty in the Middle Ages, seeks to instruct us against the cult of innovation and disruption that we now are inundated with, both culturally and institutionally. This cult seems to thrive as much on self-aggrandizement as anything else. I'm looking at you, Ted. Popular models of innovation, including buzzwords such as creative destruction or disruptive innovation prize, getting rid of anything that's old, but some folks are starting to reimagine innovation in different terms as reusing, recycling, refurbishing, sampling, or updating the old. In the medieval new, Patricia Ingham shows that creative models combining old and new have a long and interesting innovating history. Focusing on the period that gave us eyeglasses, windmills, courtly love, and mechanical clocks, not to mention falconry and the blast furnace, Ingham asks us to reconsider what we think we mean by calling something new. Patricia Ingham is professor of English and medieval studies at Indiana University and editor of Exemplaria. Is that how you say that, Patricia? Yep, that's right. Exemplaria, the (laughs) Journal of Theory in Medieval and Renaissance Studies. Patty Ingham, thanks for being with us on Interchange. It's great to be here, Doug. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Now, we opened uh, the show with a a mash uh, that I uh, achieved there on Audacity with uh, (laughs) uh, that was Guillaume de Machot Mm -hmm. and the group Nice and Smooth. Uh, The Machot was performed by the Hilliard Ensemble, Mm -hmm. and I think it was... Livoris Feritas. Sounds right. Close enough, right? <laughs> and uh, Nice and Smooth was the old to the new. So uh, I performed a little bit of, of something there, didn't I, Patty? Something yes. we're going to talk about tonight? A little bit of a mashup of the old and the new. <laughs> what, what else is there, right? Uh, there's always a little old and the new. So uh, there, there are way too many I- ideas for us to track tonight. Uh, so we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to narrow it as, as we can. But it seems to me that in your book, Patty, the, there, you really set your key on language on the alchemy of language from Roger Bacon to Chaucer to Columbus. And we should probably start, uh, not first with language, I guess, but demarcating medieval in our historical timeline and then begin to try to define some of those terms. So what is the when of the medieval new? Well, it's a it's a um, nice way to start, actually. That um, so the Middle Ages is the period given that title by 
um, the Tudors, those who came after the Middle Ages, as the middle period, the period, i.e., in between the Classical Age and the Renaissance, the um, age of sort of incipient modernity. And so because of that, you know, the, the medieval is regularly cast as the opposite of the modern. Um, in conventional popular media, we see this all the time from um, discourses about or conversations about um, uh, the war on terror that evoke sort of the medieval culture of fundamentalist religion on the one hand, um, and of course, we know that there's plenty of fundamentalist religion of all kinds of religions. New and old. Yes, that's yes. right. Um, and so, uh, and the the mashup, the music that we started with, is actually a good way to kind of think about this. Um, uh, in part, Guillaume de Machaut uh, is a poet and innovative musician. Um, who lived in the 14th century. His dates are about 1300 to 1377. And most of the work that I'm uh, engaging in in my book, The Medieval New, is focusing on um, work done in the Western Middle Ages after uh, there was a, um, the influence of Aristotle's um, thinking that came into the West from about the um, 11th century onwards. So, um, so we're the 11th century. So that's the 10 hundreds, right? And and then my um, the last figure, the the last one of my guys that I think about in this book is Christopher Columbus, and we all know his dates, right? 1492, right? We hope so. Yes. That's right. right. So um, just to go back to Machaut for a minute, um, part of what was so great about your decision to start with Machaut is that he was himself a radical innovator, um, developed a certain kind of uh, musical polyphony, the first of its kind, was also an important poet, um, and a poet that was deeply influential um, and a kind of model for one of my other guys, Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, teaching in an English department, I teach a lot of courses in Chaucer. Um, Chaucer's poetry is fabulous, and students, undergraduates, just really love it. Um, and Chaucer was deeply influenced by Mesh. Show. Uh, and one of the conversations that Chaucer is having with Mesho is actually a conversation about how to define the newfangled, what is absolutely new. So two two key figures there, Machaut and uh, Chaucer. Uh, Chaucer, come, as you say, coming after Machaut. Um, so in, in, in the sort of framework of the book, um, these two figures are are your artist figures in, in, in the story, basically. Right. We, we start right. out, I think, with Roger Bacon, who's our, our scientist figure, or right. everyone is a scientist in some sense, as right. they all seem to have a grasp of all knowledge at the time, which is another thing to to think about as we go through this. Well, and one of the things that was uh, kind of crucially important to me to realize and to remember as I was working on the book was that the difference that we see today between art on the one hand and science on the other really wasn't, there wasn't such a stark differentiation between those two um, fields. Um, and so debates that were ongoing about novelty, newfangledness. Is there such a thing as something new? How does something new come into the world? Can human beings make new things and how do they do so? All of those debates had implications for the arts on the one hand and what we would understand as the sciences. Now, there, you know, there's some quibbling over whether you can even use a term like science 
the way we understand it for the Middle Ages. Um, but most uh, scholars working in the history of science would agree that this that a word like sciences um, used with regard to the Middle Ages is defendable. And so that's the way I use it. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with Patty Ingham, author of The Medieval New, Ambivalence in an Age of Innovation. She's professor of English and Medieval Studies at Indiana University. Tonight's topic is what the Middle Ages can do to help us orient ourselves in a world of ruthless innovation and creative destruction. Uh, you mentioned the word newfangledness a few times there, one of those newfangled words, I take it. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, the word newfangled is actually a medieval word. You wouldn't necessarily expect that to be the case. Um, and Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer, while he didn't exactly coin the word newfangled, it had been used a few times in the corpus of English writing before Chaucer was writing, he began to use the word newfangled in some really, well, newfangled ways, in some really original um, uh, ways. And um, one of the ways that I got interested in this whole topic, which is, you know, a really big kind of question, was to try to figure out, to try to parse exactly what it was that Chaucer was doing with his various uses of the word new and all of its um, cognates, newfangled, novel, etc. Let's. Uh, what what exactly is newfangled? What's fangled then? Well, fangled is made, so oh, okay. newfangled as newly made, um, and it does kind of evoke. Uh, the world of gadgets and um, what I call in the book little nothings. Uh, so Chaucer uses the word newfangled um, in a in a lot of different references, but the one I focus on the most is in a little unfinished tale taken from the Canterbury Tales called The Squire's Tale. Um, and really interestingly, what Chaucer does, and this is one register of his total brilliance, is he puts the word newfangled and a critique of the newfangled in the mouth of an of a lover who has just been thrown over by her beloved. So the old lover is crying out about how unfair it is that um, her former lover is going for something newfangled and goes after the newfangled. Now, this old lover happens to be a bird, and she's talking about her... Uh, beloved uh, bird, a uh, falcon who uh, um, throws her over for a commoner bird, an everyday bird, a kite, not anywhere near as rare and interesting as she is. She's a peregrine falcon, which is, you know, high class property, <laughs> right? High class right, um, sure. material there. Yeah. Um, and um, Chaucer really interestingly has her, the rejected old lover, uh, give this speech about how terrible it is that men love the newfangled. Mm. Uh, so, so Chaucer, I assume there is mixing some of these um, understandings of what is newfangled in terms of mechanisms, what is newfangled in terms of desire, what is newfangled in terms of uh, how we have objects now that seem to be really creating these desires as much as being sort of natural elements of desire. So, um, right. The I, I would want you to talk a little bit more, too, about – you mentioned class in there, too, and I think right. or, uh, the kite versus the peregrine and how this ha- has some class issues in it as well. And in the in this, in this the Squire's Tale, is it is it is that the Genghis Khan or Genghis yes, Khan? Yes, that's tale? right. That's right. It's set at the court of Genghis Khan. Right? So this is an interesting – like I, I, throughout the book, I'm always asking myself as I'm reading your book, where is the Arabian Nights in here? Like where where, do, <laughs> where is it situated in time? Uh, mentioning uh, Khan there, too, I think somebody – in there's a date in here. 
1277, which is like at the tail end of the of the Mongolian Empire. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a lot, again, a lot of things that are happening at the same time here, and uh, especially birds having human characteristics and things like this. So there seems to be a lot of storytelling that that sort of overlaps. That crosses cultures, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. This is a so questions about novelty, the newfangled, the new in the Middle Ages. First of all, were large philosophical, scientific, artistic questions, but there were also really international questions. There were debates about what it meant to think about, for instance, the moment when the world was created, the newness of the world. And those happened, the uh, Arabic philosophers were talking about those, Christian philosophers were talking about those, Jewish philosophers were talking about those. Um, and this, uh, the literary tradition that I'm working on is also similarly a tradition that is deeply influenced by international um, relations by crossing of languages and cultures. So the squire's tale is set in this exotic court of Genghis Khan. Um, and yet the squire also at the very beginning of the tale references all of these romance heroes, heroes from medieval romance that anybody would recognize in England, like Lancelot and the, you know, great heroes of, um, Arthurian romance. Um, in the squire's tale, in addition to this poor bird who's bemoaning the loss of her beloved and the um, the uh, uh, age of you know the new, yeah. um, there is uh, in addition to her there is also a magical flying horse that's really a contraption that is able with the turning of a pin to transport a rider anywhere he wants to go all over the world. And this is obviously a motif that comes from the Arabian Nights, as well as some other um, uh, 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 literary traditions outside the West. Now, you mentioned that in the, in the book as well, it had some or someone, uh, a scholar that you quote in the book, uh, that that had um, a relation to, was it Astrolab? Is that, Astrolabe, it? Yes, yes, that's right. So the flying horse is, is a, a scientific object in that's the middle right. of, of the tale. Being described as this kind of marvelous thing that does all this magic and at the same time is, uh, uh, if you look at the description, matches the description that Chaucer elsewhere uses to describe an astrolabe. He has a, disc, a discourse on the astrolabe. What is an astrolabe? I'm an sorry. astrolabe is a sort of precursor to a compass, a navigation. It's a navigational device that um, enabled uh, people to uh, look at the stars and the heavens and and map where they were on the on the globe. Um, far, um, it is not true. What is popularly believed that in the Middle Ages people thought the world was flat. They didn't think that they could look at the horizon and see that there was an arc to the horizon. Uh, from classical times, people knew that the that the earth, the earth was round, um, and the astrolabe was a crucial instrument in helping to navigate and was used well into the age of navigation. Actually, yeah, so a lot of things are ha- happening there, which again uh, pop into this space of their map. Things are things are being ordered in the universe. That what and you mentioned earlier the question of what are humans allowed to do? Even or mm-hmm. we have we, mm-hmm. we have these divine divinity questions, right? Mm-hmm. Where where do we begin to lose that fear that if we if we transgress or is this transgression always a part of these stories as well? The the transgression of desire, the transgression of of going too far into that material space of of the object and mechanical space of the object. Right. I mean, I think there were these really serious concerns with questions about what the effect of going to great links, going in certain innovative directions, what those might produce. Um, 
we raise some of these same questions today, I think, although in, in much different registers. So there's a lot to say about the ways in which, um, uh, the philosophers tried to solve the problem of the difference between what God could make and what humans could make and the way that God made things new out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, famously, and the way versus or in distinction to the way human people could make things new, um, newly composed and new compositions, rearrangements of things that already exist in nature. Well, you had mentioned before, too, the idea that um – that there is this um, natural order to things in a sense and, and trying to dis- discover what what the how things work, I suppose, becomes a part of this uh, conversation that that seems to become linguistic as much as uh, as much as I don't know what scientific you know right. the, it turns right. on a word whether you can or can't do these things well, I mean I think I think the way I would put it, I guess I would want to say two things, and the first is that. Um, just to get back to first principles, the one thing we should remember is that what's so interesting, one of the things that's so interesting about the medieval conversation about newness is that medieval thinkers didn't think about the new as something opposed to the old. So we were not at all, they were not at all um, thinking that new things came out of and replaced and wiped out old things. Um, instead, they had a very complex, equivocal uh, understanding of the way that old and new interacted with each other. And there were uh, linguistic questions that pertained um, here to do with um, the fact that, say, novelty and innovation share a common root word, but may mean slightly different things. Uh, development of um, categories. The the medieval philosophers, in particular, were fantastic organizers, systematizers. They like to come up with sort of definitional differences, um, and part of that uh, involved categorical distinctions. Um, that, but, but. In that regard, it is so interesting that the one categorical distinction that they didn't use was the one that we use all the time, which is the opposition mm. between old and new. Because for them, old and new were not in opposition, but were in intimate relation to each other. It's time for a break. This is Derek and the Dominoes with Layla. I promise it's related to the program. Stay with us for more from our 2015 show with Patricia Ingham on the medieval new when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits. Located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. 
hours, and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Today we're listening to a show that first aired before the Trump regime in July of 2015. IU scholar Patty Ingham is our guest. She's the author of The Medieval New, Ambivalence in an Age of Innovation, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And she's about to clue us in as to why we played Layla at the break. Well, I'm certainly not the first person to note that Eric Clapton's Layla, and he mentioned it's this is cited on the back of the Derek and the Dominoes album, right? Um, well, that piece was inspired by a 12th century Persian story of madness in love called Layla and Majnun. Um, and we get a version of that madness in love. We know the famous story. I'm sure listeners know the famous story of um, the reason Clapton wrote that uh you better that tell song him. for his uh, falling in love with. Um, I forget who it was. Patty was her name as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, the the uh, the wife of his dear friend uh, George Harrison. I oh think, right, yeah, right? it was George Harrison. Um, yeah. And um, wrote that that uh, song as a, a tribute to her, inspired by the 12th century. How uh, and story. I don't mean to think that Eric Clapton can't have read uh, Layla and Majnun. But uh, I assume he did. He did. Or, and he said on the liner of, notes in the album. It's unfortunate that I would make that assumption that he was just a dumb old guy that played <laughs> rock and roll music. But um, clearly people can read. And uh, that was a – was that a fairly common tale or it was something that it people read It was a in? well-known tale. Um, it is uh, – um, it's actually had a surprising second life, thanks to Clapton, uh, oh, because okay. um, it's of great interest to many of my students when I teach that uh, story, the um, uh, and then play the Clapton um, alongside it. Uh, and some of the students, as we all know, IU has this amazing music school, and I've had music students who can. Uh, write me chapter and verse about all the innovative things that Clapton is doing mm. musically in that cut. Um, following in the long and uh, uh, fabulous tradition of the medieval innovation of the Persian poet who wrote the story of Layla and Majnun. He's an, he's an ingenious composer, is he? He is, yes. You like he's that? How I led into that ingenious yes. I used out there. Let's let's talk about that word, why don't we, while we're in here. The okay. ingenious, where does that come from? Well, um, our modern word ingenious, like our modern word engineer, are two words uh, that have a kind of a relation to medieval accounts of the new. One of the primary ways that... Uh, um, philosophers and poets in the Middle Ages thought about uh, the new, and newness was through the word ingenium, the concept of ingenium. Um, ingenium, and actually, if you don't mind, I might just read a little uh, uh, definition from the book that will maybe shed light on this. So this is just a little bit from my introduction um, on ingenium. A key category by which medieval writers considered the new, Ingenium traces its coinage to Cicero, 
in whose writing it figured as inborn, though idiosyncratic, talent. The chief virtue of the orator is inborn ingenium, from which sharpness of mind arise sharpness of invention, richness in exposition and ornament, firm and long-lasting memory. That's Cicero. During the medieval period, ingenium figured as whimsical cleverness and was regularly cast in distinction to convention and things conventional. This ingenium bridged what we today understand to be very different kinds of endeavors, as its etymological links to both ingenuity and engineer suggest, ingenium pertained to technology as well as to the arts, referring to invention in forms philosophical, aesthetic, and technical. Vernacular forms in Old French or in Middle English refer to poems, to tapestries, to, to mausoleums, uh, but also to narrative histories, to mousetraps, to auto automata, automatons, or to flying buttresses. In its medieval usage, moreover, ingenium raised ethical questions. Cleverness and wit were virtues, yet one could be too clever by half, deploying ingenuity in the service of deceit or fraud. And this was the particular place of ingenium in, the, in debates over the vicissitudes of human innovations in the Middle Ages. Thanks, Patty. That's, uh, that raises, I think, a primary point, right? That's um, deceit or fraud is an issue that we are, we're going to, uh, I think, get into a little bit here as well, especially as it seems like our age is one that is only full of deceit or fraud or and fraud. Um, so the, the, the whole idea of a huckster obviously comes to mind here. And I mentioned Ted at the beginning. I meant Ted Talks, which I yeah. always feel like our huckster talks, even if they're good or even if you enjoy them. I just always feel like they're uh, like a big circus out there trying mm. to sell me mm. something. Mm. And um, I don't know if that's always the case. And I'm sure they're very smart, nice people who do them. Um, but at the same time, it just has that feel to me. It's a performance. It's it's that kind of thing that's presenting itself as uh, styled in that way, it seems to me. Um, but I did want to uh, quickly ask you about the GYN. Is, is this uh, also Gin? in terms uh -huh. of uh, women as well? I mean, if I is it tied to the... Oh, no, that's they're different, different entirely because yeah, I was I was different. loving the idea mm -hmm. that it would be it's oh. <laughs> entirely different. Oh, no. Yeah, sorry. About I should that. have opened the dictionary before yeah. I came on tonight. <laughs> well, so. one thing just on the on the topic of um, hucksterism. Mm. I mean, certainly, I think you know a term like you know brand spanking. You know, a phrase like brand spanking new attracts hucksters. You know, in any age. You know, then as now. Um, but I would say that I think there are. Uh, Certainly, there are ways in which the attraction that humans across time have to the newfangled and to novelty is not just a bad thing. It's part of what I find so um, fascinating and interesting about the medieval period then on this score is that they were absolutely convinced, these thinkers, that newness could be good and it also could be bad, right? And that those two things sometimes happen simultaneously and that it took a great deal of what I like to think of as slow thought, you know, considered, thoughtful, um, philosophical, artistic, uh, working through to work out the good parts from the bad parts. And so um, these ethical debates about the new in the Middle Ages often get misread as simply critiques. And people will often say, and even some scholars will say, you know, the uh, medieval thinkers pursued the new in terms of a dichotomy um, between tradition and innovation. And I actually have come to uh, think in the course of my research that no, it wasn't a dichotomy at all. It was, in fact, a deeply 
complicated ambivalence, yeah, uh, and, and a sense so, of both good and bad, both desirable, but also in certain ways worrisome. And I think this is a problem, a question that we still share today. There's a lot of good that happens in the name of innovation, but not everything that touts the name of innovation is good. <laughs> and <laughs> and having that conversation is, I think, a conversation um, that would be really helpful for us to have culturally. And I think that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that inspired me mm. to, to write the book. Well, slow thought is difficult in the world we live in, I suppose. I don't know if it was difficult at the times of Chaucer and Roger Bacon as well. Um, I think that it's interesting that you began, I think, one of your segments in your book with uh, a proverb of Muhammad's or attributed to Muhammad's. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every new thing is an innovation and every innovation is an error and every error leads to hell. Um, that's pretty much cut and dried there. Right. Black and right. white there for right. Muhammad. That's right. So that's I, I don't right. know what well, new is there. Yeah, okay. Right. So I don't know right. what new is there. I don't know right. what innovation means. I don't know what these new things are. If right. they're uh, made things, new laws, uh, there can't be any new scripture. But of course, there is new scripture all the time. And uh, certain scripture abrogates other scripture. Right. So right. Uh, even in that period itself, well, maybe right. not during Muhammad's life, but after. Well, uh, I so. mean, I mean, absolutely. First of all, one thing to say is that it's not as if um, medieval thinkers or poets or artists or gadget makers uh, speak with one voice on this question. I mean, there are a lot of debates going on. And I think the um, aphorism ascribed to Muhammad um, is one of the uh, represents one very harsh critique of innovation. And certainly there were many cautions about the dangers of um chasing after the new willy-nilly. Um, on the other hand, there were also these very complicated um, uh, projects to try to determine under what terms something new was not only recognizable but desirable. So, for instance, um, another one of my philosophical guys, the Franciscan Bonaventure, comes up with a kind of tripartite um, definition of human, of making, of creation, in which he says there are certain kinds of things that only God makes. There are other kinds of things. He calls these new compositions that humans can make. And then there are other kinds of new things that nature can make. Um, and that's one of the ways that these guys tried to think about this, those questions you raised. What, how do we recognize when something is new? They were much less, um, confident that every claim about the new was one that we should believe. Mm. Um, and they were much less confident that we always recognized um, something valuable when we recognized something new. Hmm. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with Patty Ingham, author of The Medieval New, Ambivalence in an Age of Innovation. Um, we were just talking about the dangers of attraction here as well and trying to – we did that a little bit in the previous segment. We talked about uh, Chaucer's uh, Squire's Tale and there's there's attraction in there. I don't know if it's the dangers of attraction, but it's the ways in which um, newfangledness attracts us to other uh, items or elements or, or ideas even uh, and how we, we can be led astray by these things. Uh, and we have to figure out a way to, I guess, parse what is good or bad about the newfangled. Well, and certainly Chaucer's Peregrine Falcon speaks very eloquently about um, the downside of chasing after the new. At the same time, though, as a number of scholars have pointed out, even as he's writing that description of the um, Peregrine Falcon and 
talking about the newfangled, Chaucer's involved in some very innovative work at the same time. So again, there is this sort of, we need to be wary at the same time. We need to be wary while we're pursuing something. Does it seem like, uh, I think throughout the book, again, that there's this kind of pressure on the way in which we create literature versus the way we create uh, mechanical things or material things? Some differences between yeah, those things? Yeah, uh, so, so it seems like I could probably, and this may not be true in this particular era, uh, and maybe not true in ours too in a fundamental context, but if I can create with words, um, it's less likely to lead to certain kinds of material destruction, I suppose, versus uh, creating out of materials or mechanical s- sorts of things. Is there less danger in being an innovative poet than in being an innovative scientist, I suppose? Well, in part because there weren't quite those distinctions as as carefully as you make them. So even somebody like so so let's take for instance a figure like Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon. Um, there are a lot of uh, contemporary um, fans of Roger Bacon. He wrote um, a letter that's often that's called um, now the magical letter <laughs> uh, of Roger Bacon, um, in which he describes, and some of you listeners may be familiar with this text, in which he describes underwater boats and um, uh, uh, chariots that can run without animals pulling them and sort of things that seem to anticipate um, submarines and cars and airplanes and things like that. Um, so he was deeply involved in thinking about the making of new things. But one of the ways that he pursued that consideration, and it was a kind of consideration about futurism, what's possible, what might be possible. And he, he says, you know, as far as I can t- tell from my authorities, anything could be possible. Humans could make any kind, all kinds of things. Um, uh, but one of the ways that he thinks about that is through language. So he thinks about that kind of making through um, particular uh, theories about how words work, theories of equivocation. When this, uh, theories of equivocation were very important in the Middle Ages in part because um, there were relationships between linguistic equivocation and logic. Um, and so so there were these sort of links between the creating of fictional worlds in poetry and the creating of representations, mimetic representations of the world, um, like um, little automatons of gadgety birds, mm-hmm. right? So there was um, a very Im- uh, important garden uh, in on the continent, the Garden of Hesdon, and it was a garden that was created by a, um, a, a, a um, the owner, a lord, you know, an aristocrat, um, and he had various makers uh, dream up all kinds of gadgets and things as kind of party tricks for his uh, um, guests that he would invite to the garden, and then they would these gadgets would do all kinds of things like. Um, birds that could sort of move and sing little songs in various ways. But the very same technologies used to make these luxury items, these gadgets, were also the same technologies that were used to make mechanical clocks. Mm. So the question in the Middle Ages wasn't so much about the difference between words and things 
as it was the difference between um, luxury items and items that were useful, items mm. that could be use and helpful. enjoyment. Use there's and a enjoyment. Distinction That's between right. the two, and that there is right. a you, maybe a, a religious distinction as well. There, or, well, the distinction between yeah. use and enjoyment goes out all the way back to Augustine, and so certainly there were issues to do with ethics and the proper use, the right use of. Um, the natural world that had been given to us um, and questions about when was it ethically a misuse of the goods of the world to say, create things for personal profit rather than to share freely. Um, and a lot of, there was a, a lot of the moralists, the medieval moralists talked about various uses of new things in terms of certain kinds of sins, sins of greed or pride or other kinds of um, ethical lapses. And so there was this sense that, you know, this was where these new things were dangerous. They were dangerous to the people making them and using them. Hmm. Um, they were dangerous in ethical in ethical terms. So ethically, then, the, the, the question then becomes, how, how is it you begin to decide then ethically what is use and what is enjoyment mm -hmm. or where that crossover That's exactly space right. is, right? And That's we, exactly right. We, I don't know how many times we have conversations now about whether we should create certain things or not. Right. I mean, and we have the big ones, right? We talk about, right. we used to talk about cloning. I don't know if we talk about cloning anymore. I don't know if there are people cloning things all over the place. I'm there, sure there are. I think there are. Um, and, but we don't talk about it anymore. Um, we talk about drones now and we talk about, but we don't talk about should we or shouldn't we, and we already have. Um, so we don't have these discussions in that maybe that slow way that we should, and it's a different mm. world, I understand. Mm. But here is mm. a place where you begin to make these mechanicals, in a sense. You begin to understand the way the world operates. There's no second law of thermodynamics yet, but <laughs> but right. uh, things are beginning right. to work in a particular way, and you're beginning to parse whether they should or shouldn't be done, which is well, an interesting it, thing to think right. about. Right, and, and the whole question of the ethics of reproducing the world, right, the natural world, mimesis, right, um, the making of imitation, art as imitating life, all of those kinds of questions come out of, um, all the way back from classical times, though this is the classical inheritance that the, that medieval thinkers were very um, interested in. I just want to sort of put in a little plug for, if people are interested in this idea, another new book that just came out of UPenn Press, where my book came out, is a book called Medieval Robots, which is all about um, this question about autonomy automation, automatons, and their relationship to poetic making and other kinds of philosophy. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here at Birdland this evening, a recording for Blue Note Records. It's time for another break. This is Cantaloupe Flip Fantasia by Us Three, which samples Herbie Hancock's 1974 composition, Cantaloupe Island. When we return, the innovator is a huckster. Stay with us for more on Making the Old New Again on Interchange on WFHB. Wait, wait a minute. Groovy, groovy, jazzy, funky, bounce, bounce, dance as we dip in the melodic sea. Rhythm keeps flowing and trips to MC. Sweet sugar pop, sugar pop, rocks and pop. You don't stop till the sweet beat drops. I show improve as I stick and move. Vivid poems recited on top of the groove. Smooth, mind, floating like a butterfly. Notes set afloat, sung like a lullaby. Brace yourself as the beat hits you. 
Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. Sweat from the heat Back to the fact I'm the Mac And I know that The way I keep the rhyme Some will call me a poet Poem steady flowing Growing, showing sights and sound Caught in the groove Invitation I'm found Many tripped and tore Upon the rhymes they soared To an infinite height To the realm of the hardcore Here we go Welcome back to Interchange I'm Doug Storm We're airing a program From July 2015 BTE Before the Trump era With Patty Ingham an Indiana University professor of English and Medieval Studies and author of The Medieval New, Ambivalence in an Age of Innovation. Ingham, how does sampling like this fit into our discussion? Well, it's a great um, way to think about uh, a habit that's very old but has gotten a kind of new life. So sampling is very much a model for the way medieval artists uh, proceeded as artists, right? Taking a piece that has been worked before and reworking it, taking pieces from it, inspiration from it, um, uh, creating what one uh, a scholar says, a kind of new luminosity by engaging something old. So if I could just read a little bit, um, this is from the, uh, chapter five, which uh, talks a little bit about the ways in which medieval poets did a version of this sort of um, poetic reworking. We'll give you a sense of this is not the new versus the old, but the old constantly being remade, reworked, reused. So um, these creative acts um, give older things a new luminosity. The new of much medieval poetry marks its glamour with this kind of blaze, a resplendent recreation of worlds dreamt before, now reworked to even higher polish. The process upends old and new, then and now, and to a stunning anachronistic effect. Chaucer's, for instance, luminous description of his character Crusade in Widow's Weeds from book one of his long masterpiece Troilus and Crusade may get the details of obsolete Trojan costumes exactly wrong, but he does so to state-of-the-art aesthetic and poetic effect. Classical older figures are regularly altered, which is to say updated, in medieval narratives, as when a figure like Aeneas casts a high chivalric shadow, or a figure like Theseus gains compassion after the manner of the late medieval prince. These were once read as signs of a poetic consciousness that couldn't register historical difference at all. But now such poetic gestures are acknowledged for the ways that they imaginatively refresh uh, details with the fashion and power of a new moment. This is a brand of newness as nowness. The old becomes resplendently hip, freshly translated, and elegantly adorned. 
And I had to read that passage because one must use the word hip right. whenever we're talking about anything to do. Well, we just with listened Hancock. to hip hop. So right. That's right. And yeah. a hip hop so version. Perfect. Of it, right? Perfect. Uh, so newness as nowness. And, and how, how is that something to do we parse that as, a, as good or bad? Or do we, do we look at it as nowness always being a, a there, there, you know, do it, do it, do it, versus uh, the idea that new can be different or strange and not. Only now, now, now. Right. Well, I mean, I think part of part of the way I've been thinking about newness as nowness is as a kind of poetic sustainability, right? Where there are lots of ways in which we recognize the power um, today, socially, economically, um, ecologically, of uh, recycling. Poetic recycling, musical recycling has a kind of power. And what I love about this is the way that it refuses that fundamental opposition of old versus new and instead says, no, there are ways in which the old is is getting re-entangled, revivified, rearranged, and seen with fresh eyes from a slightly different vantage. So we can see things, hear things, know things um, that are about the pasts and the past as strange to us, as different from the way we do things now, but also to think about the continuities, the commonalities, the ways in which the past continues into the present. Yeah, so it struck me throughout, you know, that this, and the reason I really like the idea of playing those hip-hop or jazz uh, songs is because jazz strikes me as a very much uh, in in this kind of way, you know, working in this kind of way, and there was a not too Absolutely. long ago, there was a um, a podcast or a radio show on uh, radio open source where the modern jazz pianist uh, VJ Iyer uh, was talking about um, finding the new in the old as mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. and he said this on on that show: when I do a cover, I do it from memory. I really want to think about the way these songs work on our memory. One way to start is to just rummage around in my own memory. That's a lot of memory in there. There's a kind of imperfection to it. Reconfigure, give it a different tone and rhythm. There's a sort of wonder at new music, new possibilities, new discoveries, new talent, new players. There's a belief in innovation and also people cherishing the history of the music. So there he mixes exactly the two right. exactly as exactly you were, were talking. Right. There, yes. There's no dichotomy. The the old is necessary for the new. That's right. And the primary um, emphasis on memory there is very much something that medieval poets would well recognize and embrace. There were lots of theories about memory in the Middle Ages also and ways in which the reworking of poetic motifs required a reliance on memory, on committing lines of other people's poetry to memory on working with and against other linguistic traditions and cultural traditions. Now, there's also uh, by another jazz artist, Charles Mingus, who actually brings up this point that I think we're going to work into now about how um, memory gets lost in technical innovations. Hmm. And he says, this is from a 1972 uh, interview. Charles Mingus was uh, the great jazz bassist and composer. He says, I think it's time that good musicians get rid of electric instruments because a good musician can't play an electronic instrument. It plays you. For instance, if you want to bend a note, you've got to push a button to bend it. You can't control the dynamics. You play soft, loud with a bow on a violin, but it comes out all the same volume on the electric machine. It's meant for someone who is not sincere about playing how he feels. I've heard nothing better than a Steinway yet all over the world. I've heard nothing better than a violin. I mean, they're not going to make a better piano, man. 
Electronics are doing the same thing in music as elsewhere. They're replacing people. Push a button. It sounds like an oboe, but it's not a good oboe player. And the great men like Charlie Parker and men who played legitimate instruments would laugh at these guys because they're not in it for the love of music, but because they think they're going to make a lot of money. You can get a little kid to push a button. Well, I mean, I may be, I have a nephew who is very much uh, interested and has taught me actually a lot about techno music and about, about, um, you think he's sincere? The uses you think Charles Mingus has been mean to him? Well, or? I mean, I, I guess I would just say that I think <laughs> everything depends on how something is repeated, oh, right? So I'm there sure. are ways to repeat it that may be insincere and craven, but there are also ways, even in techno music, I think, to innovate and to, attend to the tradition in a um, in a kind of way that that the best medieval poets would also recognize. I think it's fair to think you can respect those things. And I mean, Mingus was a grumpy guy. Uh, right. So. <laughs> and we understand, right? right. You know, right. Um, I'm always in the mood for a little polemic now and then. So, <laughs> so but one of the things you mentioned uh, there or, or that, that Mingus mentions is the love of money in some sense. And this is a part of the, the issue in your book as well, greed and avarice and the, and the sort of profit over, over doing things for another reason, I suppose, and uh, higher reason or uh, more with a different kind of valuation. Um, but one thing let's get into before we run out of time here is uh, the idea of, of innovation in, in the business world, the idea of innovation in the university, uh, which is the business world as well, uh, obviously now, and not so much the, the um, scholastic place we, we wish it were, I suppose. Um, but um, let's talk a little bit about that. And uh, I think it was 2014, Jill Lepore wrote something in the, the New Yorker uh, right. about innovation and, and really just totally destroyed or took apart the idea of the innovative as, as, a, as, as a predictive theme, a predictive way to understand business and understand way, the way things work. Well, she was very, I mean, I, I'm very much um, an admirer of her work and very much an admirer of that particular essay, which was in the June 2014 um, New Yorker with a great title about what the gospel of innovation gets wrong. And, um, you know, this was happening right at the time that my book was going to press. Otherwise, I would have had, you oh. know, probably cited this great essay. Um, part of what Lepore is going after, and I think quite rightly, is the assumption, and it's an assumption that we see and hear all the time, even, you know, in the letters to the editor in the Herald Times or in the, you know, all over the place, that, um, that, the best kind of the most radical and important uh, kind of innovation in our current age is disruptive innovation or a, an innovation that is that is predicated on the absolute um, decimation of everything that has come before. And what she shows by very carefully going through um, and responding to one particular book, um, and she shows that there were a lot of assumptions and some bad historicism going on in the writing of that book. Um, but one of the points that she makes is that um, most big ideas have critics at some times, that, that somebody will come up when, when progress became a really important idea in the early part of the 20th century. There were plenty of people that stood up in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust and the nuclear age and said, wait a minute, you know, technology may not be giving us only progress. Um, her point was disruptive innovation doesn't seem to have any critics. Um, and people who doubt it or who want to critique it are often charged with 
being Luddites, like haters of technology or old fogies, um, as if, and I think at one point she puts it, as if to criticize a theory of change were identical to decrying change, right? To not wanting there to ever be anything new. Um, and so part of what I hope this book, I, people will read it and this book will contribute to a more complicated notion of the various models of innovation that are available to us today um, in, instead in place of this one model that seems to have the biggest megaphone right at the moment, which is a kind of notion of innovation as having to destroy, disrupt, do in everything that has gone before. Yeah, there are lots of reasons it doesn't work. It's but. definitely part of the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial meme as well, right? You need to get in and do this yourself. You need to, to sort of get to that space where you can make these uh, adventurous moves in in all uh, types of industry and in all types of uh, understanding of how you're going to make money. It's like you don't uh, do anything except do it as fast as you can and then sell it. You know, make something interesting, sell it. Mm. Make an app and sell it. And do this and sell it. And um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I think one of the guys in in, in that article said it's a, a devastating innovation. You know, as, right. as you said. Right. Uh, one right. thing she says here I liked as well. She says startups are ruthless and leaderless and unrestrained. They seem so tiny and powerless until you realize, but only after it's too late, that they're devastatingly dangerous. Bang, kaboom. Think of it this way: the Times. New York Times is a nation state. BuzzFeed is a stateless is stateless. Disruptive innovation is a competitive strategy for an age seized by terror. So she's in part of that um, uh, quotation that you read. She's on the one hand ventriloquizing right. the point that um, denizens of disruptive innovation sort of make, right? And then on the other hand, pointing out the degree to which this seems perfectly designed for an age full of panic, an age of of terrorism, uh, the age of terrorism when you know, we're being told, hurry up already, you're already belated, it's already too late. Ah, uh, we're already, be- That's that's been a, th- a common theme for all of us, right? Since the, <laughs> since at least the Bible, you know, you're always too late, you're already too late. Um, so let's, uh, let's see, before we get, again run out of time, we've got a few minutes left, you wanted to speak a little bit about the, the university and its place in, in, in scholarship and in, in academia and how it's managing this idea of new and innovation. Well, I mean, the university um, has long been uh, a an engine for innovation. One of the things that the university um, talks about, uh, and not just at IU, at IU, and all kinds of universities across the country, is the importance of the innovation of the university to the state, um, to our local economies, uh, and you know, promulgating innovations in a variety of different places. Um, but the other thing we need to remember as well is that the university has also long been a repository for a cons- for the conservation and renewal of diversities from long ago and far away, of histories of reading and writing, of music, musical composition, musical performance, of the arts, as well as the humanities. And so, um, and I'll just read a tiny bit from the very, from the afterword of the book, um, but it seems to me that it's very important that we continue to think about the way innovation throughout its long history has been thought. There's some insights here that are applicable to our um, 
to our uh, day, uh, to today, as I've ho- I hope I've sort of pointed out a couple of times already today in, in this broadcast. Um, but we still need to be able to have access to the kinds of texts and contexts that offer the opportunity to think about these different models of newness and these various ages of innovation. Um, so just reading from the end of my book, um, this is a time when innovation has become a nearly ubiquitous slogan for the 21st century of, universi- of the university, also a time when the humanities are said to be in great decline. An insatiable hunger for the new at any price fuels accounts of decline, as Jean Laplanche notes. And so it seems no coincidence to me that our contemporary moment bemoans the decline of the liberal arts while rushing toward a version of the new from which the traditional disciplines, that is, English, history, are almost always excluded. The future that beckons for the innovating university remains unclear, but we might well remember that the university has long been a site for both edges of what I have called the medieval new, for experiments in new possibilities, as well as for the conservation and renewal of diversities from long ago and far away. The defense of the university increasingly emphasizes its capacity to foster innovation, yet we often take for granted just what the new entails. So I I hope with my book to have reopened this question to offer a different brand of how the medieval new might dislodge maybe even some of our own assumptions about the meaning of innovation and novelty um, or the relationship of the new to the old. One, two, one, two. Well, thank you, Patty Ingham, for being with us tonight and introducing us to your book, The Medieval New, Ambivalence in an Age of Innovation. Thanks, Thanks Patty. for having me. It was really fun. We'll close the show tonight with a song by Mad Lib, the professional name of Otis Jackson Jr., an American DJ, multi-instrumentalist, rapper, and music producer. This song, Slim's Return, is off the album Shades of Blue, which raids the Blue Note catalog in order to remix some classic jazz songs. Slim's Return was originally recorded by Gene Harris and the Three Sounds as the Book of Slim, and it contains samples from Milt Jackson's People Make the World Go Round. Doug Storm for Interchange. You've been listening to a repeat airing of our 2015 show, Innovation is Nothing New, Novelty in the Middle Ages, with author and scholar Patricia Ingham. This was a live show, and our board engineer for it was Joe Crawford, who was also the news director at the time. I produce Interchange, and Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Bro.